Otherwise, if you'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 2, the word should appear behind me as well. Um, just as a bit of background, last time, if you were here in the summer, uh, I preached from Philippians 2. We looked at the beginning part of, uh, of chapter 2 and looked at how Paul exhorts and encourages the Philippians and, and us to be humble and united and uh, living together for God. We're going to go on uh, to look at the, uh, the verses that follow that section. We're going to go, start from, uh, we're going to look at verse 12 and 13. Uh, but this whole section is a great exhortation from Paul. He's, he's begun his letter. He's given uh, greetings from, from Rome. He's, been, he's let them know he's in prison. He's, uh, he's writing to them from, from probably a fairly tough place. He's in prison in Rome. Uh, he, he lets them know something of what's going on around him in Rome. And he, he encourages them by saying he wants to come and see them. But he doesn't know whether that's going to be possible. He, doesn't know, he knows he's going to be in front of the emperor. He might be, he might, he might be dead. Or he might be free, and he might be able to come and see them. That's the, the background to this. Then he comes to verse chapter 1, verse 27. He says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he kind of, from that, launches into this whole exhortation that we looked at some of uh, last time I was preaching about being, being a united people, living for God. And he gives this great, we're going to start today from verse 5. He gives this great great few verses looking at that great example of Christ. So let's start Philippians 2 verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And we're going to look at these two verses, 12, verse 12 and verse 13. Paul's given this great exhortation. He's, he's, go, he's going through it. And then he looks at this great example of Jesus And then he says this, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What is it that Paul's saying? What does it mean for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? And particularly, I want us to look at it in the sense of how do we respond to this encouragement, this exhortation? What does it mean for us? I think what we need to know as we're looking at it, we need to understand what it is, how it is that we've been saved, what it is and how what God is like, so that we can understand what it means to work out our salvation. So in a sense, before we look at actually what Paul is meaning, to help us to see that, we're going to actually look a bit at what he doesn't mean. So first, I want you to imagine that you're studying for a qualification. That you're back at school. Maybe you're at school, so you won't be back at school. You're there, you know this, you've got this. 
So if you're still at school, you understand what I'm talking about. You've got exams coming up. You've got coursework that's been set. The deadlines are coming. I think one of the uh, most common dreams, apparently, is the, uh, the dream of the fear that you failed an exam or you've woken up and you think, oh no, I've got an exam today and I haven't prepared at all because I've just completely forgotten about it until this very moment. But we haven't forgotten it this time. We've got these coursework, we've got this coursework, we've got these exams. But I remember studying for anything was massively stressful. It's, in, it's, it's stressful not because, not because you don't like the subject or anything like that, but because when the coursework's marked, or when the exam is marked, it counts for something. And, and it means we're studying and we're working hard and we're getting there. And then eventually we're going to hear whether we made the grade or whether we passed or we failed. Now, it can be easy for us to slip into thinking that, that what Paul, that's what Paul is saying here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But no. That, that somehow our life has turned into this kind of set of coursework assignments that one day God's going to mark. He is going to judge. He's going to mark. He's going to look at our lives. But actually what we have done and how we have earned and achieved is going to, to see whether we've made the grade. To see whether we have passed or failed. Whether we've earned our salvation. But is this what Paul's saying? Is that what Paul's saying, really? No. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, I read it before uh, we looked at this passage. He says, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. But this isn't the gospel. And of course... This isn't what Paul's saying. He says it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. In fact, starting at verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, but it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. We haven't got this set of coursework assignments that actually when we get to the, ah, I did the best in the exams, I made it. No, we've just sung it. Because of Jesus, I'm failing love. I am forgiven. I am restored. It's because of Jesus, because of his love that we are saved. No, Paul's not urging us to earn our salvation fearfully and trembling, looking to make the grade, striving to pass the test, to be good enough for God. No, this kind of understanding of what Paul said just doesn't stack up. Because as Paul says again in Romans chapter 3, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can't do it. If it is a set of coursework assignments for us to get, we've already failed. But by Jesus' blood poured out for us, as he, as Paul just said, as he stepped down and was found in human likeness, becoming obedient to the point of death, as he did that, we're saved by his grace. So, okay, it's not about us being coursework Christians, looking, striving to make the grade at the end of time. 
We're saved by his grace. So, okay, what is Paul saying? We're saved by grace, but then do we take over from there? I was reminded when I was thinking of this, of uh, A Christmas Carol, the uh, Charles Dickens book. In fact, I wasn't remembering the book. I was remembering watching films. But A Christmas Carol, and particularly of Ebenezer Scrooge's penniless clerk, Bob Cratchit. We see Bob Cratchit in, in Scrooge's office, cowering in the corner, working out, working out his salvation from poverty with fear and trembling, in fear that anything he may do may incur the wrath of Scrooge. He's been given a job. He's been saved out of his, his position. But now he's got to make sure he toes the line really well, otherwise Scrooge is going to be angry. It's kind of paying Scrooge back, as it were, for showing him this mercy of giving him a job. And again, we can see things like this if we're not careful. We know we're saved by grace. Thank you, Jesus. But then we can slip back to thinking, well, we're saved, but now I need to keep God, God happy. He's going to be angry. We somehow make out God to be this kind of Ebenezer Scrooge angry character who'll be disapproving of all our mistakes. But again, that's not what Paul's talking about either. Because God isn't like Ebenezer Scrooge, thankfully. We're not living anymore in fear of his wrath and anger. Romans 5 and verse 9. Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In saving us by Jesus' blood, God's wrath against our sin was poured out on him so that now we're reconciled to him. We're not living in fear of wrath. Our relationship, as it were, isn't that of an employee with a distant and strict boss. But as 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That's what we are. We're children of a loving Father, an awesome, mighty, powerful Father, but a loving father. We're not slaves of a tyrannical or harsh master who, who yes, has bought us as a price, but now demands our hard graft that we, well, you better watch out because I bought you. No. We're bought near. We're children of God. So, we're not to see this as though we're coursework Christians. Striving to make the grade, to earn our salvation, to, to pass. And neither are we Cratchit Christians. Battling to keep this tyrannical Ebenezer Scrooge character of a God happy. No. Therefore, dear friends, Paul begins this bit. Paul begins, we dearly love children of God. We're washed clean in the precious blood of the Lamb. So, so how do we respond? How do we understand Paul's command? 
We clearly don't just throw it out. Ah, I'm saved by grace and loved by God. He's got it covered. I'll just let him. No, he's not looking for, sorry, to keep the run of seas going, couch potato Christians. Either reducing the gospel, as, as Mark referred to a couple of weeks ago, to this kind of cheap grace that, that says, I'm sorted now, I've ticked the box, Jesus' is, Jesus is blood has washed me clean now. Ah, oh, right, that what's on the telly. I'll just sit and let everything go on. Now, Paul is encouraging us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So, what does he mean? Basically, Paul is looking for a heart response to God's love. He begins, verse 12, therefore, and it refers back to all of this previous exhortation, starting in verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 27, as I've, re- I've read, live your lives in a, w- in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. And then we have to remember what Paul has just looked at in the build-up to these verses. We'll read it again from verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. As we see what God has done in sending Jesus and by his death, by his blood, saving us, rescuing us. As we realize what it is he's done. And specifically, as we've seen here, looking at this wonderful humbling of himself that Jesus has done. He was in very nature God, but he's humbled himself and come down and taken our sin and died. And God has accepted that sacrifice and he's exalted him above every other name. As we see this, we respond. We respond. Therefore, dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul, Paul's not calling us to make the grade in a kind of, I've got to keep it, keep it going and earn our salvation. Or trying to keep God, this angry God, happy. And he calls us to respond to that which has been given us, to that which we've been brought into by our loving Father through the wonderful, obedient sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, we see, that we see some of the fact that Paul is looking for this in verse 12. He says, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also, but how much more now in my absence? He's not looking for them just to obey while he's there. Oh yeah, I'll pause it, better look busy. He's not looking for some kind of rule following that kind of, okay, I can see you're doing well, guys. He wants, he wants their hearts to be changed. I 
I mean, there's a part of that that's saying, don't slip back now that I'm not with you guys. There's a, there's a genuine thing there that's like, okay, guys, I know you were doing it well when I was there. But there is that sense. No, no, I don't want you to kind of put on a good show for me. I want your hearts to be changed. So we're working out this salvation we've received. Yes, with fear and trembling, because this is awesome. This isn't a casual or a throwaway thing. This, we see the magnitude and the wonder of what God has done. We've seen some of that through the worship. We've heard people praying out, oh, how amazing it is, God. That the son would step down and die for me, for you. And we can sing it, and apologies for quoting myself. <laughs> but we can sing, when I look at the cross, reflect on the cost. The price you paid, amazing grace. And then what? My heart must sing. Hallelujah. But we sang it again this morning. You are our one desire. We're here for you. Our hearts respond to the wonder of this grace. To the wonder of this awesome salvation. And we do it in singing, but Paul calls it for us to live it out. As our hearts respond, we're living out lives worthy to the gospel of Christ. So, what is it we're to do? We're not to be coursework Christians, trying to earn our salvation. Neither are we to be cratchit Christians, trying to appease an angry slave driver God. But nor are we to be couch potato Christians, Casually accepting that God has saved us, but not doing anything about it in our lives. No. As we respond overwhelmed and in awe of the love that God has shown us, the grace that he poured out on us, as we continue to work out our salvation, we are becoming more and more Christ-like Christians. That's what Paul's been communicating through this whole section. May your attitude be as that of Christ Jesus. And as John writes again, we'll turn to it this time in 1 John 3, starting at verse 1. We read the first verse before. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And we see John here is also urging us to be more Christ-like. He said, purify him yourself as he is pure. As we see the love the Father has lavished on us. Because of this hope and because one day we will be like him. And as Paul put it in Romans 12 as well, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. In fact, we understand what it is to be saved. We've been forgiven, yes, but we've been brought into his family. We've been made children of God. God is our Father. We are his children. This, this is what our salvation is, that we've been brought in where we were far away. We've been brought into his family. And so, in that sense, working out our salvation, we could say, it's, let's put it into practice. Let's be who God has made us. 
Which is why this idea of the, the cheap grace or couch potato Christian can't be the way for us to respond. We've been made children of God, adopted into his family. How can we be anything else? We want to be the pure, blameless children of the king, loving and obeying our heavenly father like Christ. So as that Romans 12 verse says, in view of God's mercy, we see and wonder at what he has done. And so, as Paul says later in Philippians, we press on towards the goal. We make every effort, as Mark was pointing out to us in 2 Peter the other week. Or, as this passage says, we work out our salvation in becoming more and more like Christ, becoming who we are, children of God. But we see also that this is not just our effort. This is not just us saying, I'm going to become more like Jesus. No. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work in us. We're We're called to work out our salvation, but God is at work in us. We see that Paul's already referred to this in his letter in chapter 1, in the first few verses, in verse, starting verse 4. It says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God has begun a work in us that he will carry on to completion. And he is at work in us by his Holy Spirit. As we look to respond to this wonderful grace, as we as we do that by working out our salvation, as we look to become more Christ-like, we immediately see our need for the Holy Spirit. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We need the Holy Spirit working in us. And we see what he is doing He's working in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. Or as Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3. Two Corinthians 3 and verse uh, 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the lord who is the spirit by the work of the holy spirit we're being transformed into his likeness into the likeness of christ we're being made more and more christ-like reflecting his glory with ever increasing measure and we see that as our hearts respond to work out our salvation we're joining in with the work that the spirit is doing in us And that is, as Jesus promised in John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. And there we see again that great combination. Out of our love for Jesus, we obey. We look to, we look to strive to, to go after him. But he sends his spirit to work in us. His love for us doesn't leave us as orphans, but makes us children and gives us his spirit. And we need the spirit who gives us life, who helps us in our weakness. We're going to come to close very soon. But we're going to look quickly in Romans chapter 8, where Paul looks at what the work of the Spirit is in us, how the Spirit helps us in working out our salvation. So if you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at a few verses in different places. Just to get our heads, to focus our minds on what the Spirit does. So okay, firstly, Romans 8 verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. So the Spirit sets our minds on the things of the Spirit. He sets our minds on, not on things that lead to death, on things that lead to life and peace. Again, in verse 9, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not, have this, does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit gives us life. And then more so, going on in verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you live, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The Spirit helps us in living out and working out our salvation by helping us to put to death the sinful nature, by helping us to live for what is right, to live for God. And it goes on, verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit makes us sons and makes us to be sons of God. And finally, in verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We need the Holy Spirit. Paul is encouraging us, exhorting us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. As we look to do that, we do that as a heart response to what he has done. What God has done in sending his son to us, in dying on the cross, in Jesus dying on the cross for us and rising again, in him bringing us close, bringing us in and giving us his Holy Spirit. But friends, as we look to work out our salvation, we need the Holy Spirit at work in us. We need him. Our hearts want to respond. As Jesus said to his disciples when they fell asleep, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are, we're weak people. We want our hearts respond to what God has done. 
We want to work it out, but we need the Spirit to strengthen us. We need the Spirit to work in us, to transform us in ever-increasing glory, to, to reflect his glory in ever-increasing measure, to make us more like him. So in summary, we sung it before. We lift up our eyes, lift up our eyes to the giver of life. We look to him. We see him who has given us, brought us into salvation, who has given us life. And now we can sing, we are more, more than conquerors through his deathless love. Nothing now will have a hold on us because of the work of his spirit in us. We need his Holy Spirit as our hearts respond to him to be Christ-like Christians. Let's pray.